So my name is good to see all of you again. Uh, my name is Brian and I'm an apprentice here at SMAC, you don't know me. And uh, it would be great if you could have your Bibles open uh, to page 1181. Um, and that's where we'll be spending the majority of our time today. So it would be great if you could have your Bibles open. But before we begin, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have all spiritual blessings in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we can rejoice in his grace uh, in his love. And Father, we come to you today, please help us uh, to listen to your word once again. Uh, please help us to see uh, how we can be living for you, uh, how we can um, uh, be uh, living to your grace, uh, living to your glory. So please grant us attentive hearts now, uh, open our ears, open our minds. Uh, we pray out it now in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Our citizenship is in heaven. That's what Paul has been calling for us to do. To remember, to bear in mind, to take heed. You remember this from our passage last week? Uh, right at the end of chapter 3 in verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. The same Lord Jesus, whom Paul tells us earlier in his letter, humbled himself twice over, first to become a human, and then secondly to die on the cross. The same Lord Jesus, under whom God will bring all things in heaven and earth together, to whom every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow to. The same Lord Jesus, Paul now tells us, who will one day definitely return to deliver his people once and for all and transform all creation. No wonder the key aspect of this heavenly citizenship is to wait eagerly for his coming. Only in the Saviour King Jesus shall Christians be remade with glorious new bodies and grab hold of the resurrection of the dead. That's in 3 verse 10. This is the person to whom all Christians declare their loyalty to. The kingdom to which all Christians belong to and the hope to which all Christians subscribe to. But this waiting is not a passive one. Do you remember too, from last week, that Paul tells us to press on. Now, Orange is a European mobile phone company, so those of you in the UK will probably know it. And their tagline used to be, the future's bright, the future's orange. Now, Paul tells us that for the Christian, the future is bright because the future is Christ. There is a point to it all. There is a race to be won. There is a price to be obtained. And so Paul's call is for us to leave all our worldly achievements behind. Instead, straining forward in accordance with our heavenly citizenship, we live with new priorities. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony 
in uh, Greek territory. So a Roman citizen in Philippi would therefore be a kind of ambassador for the Roman way of life. He would speak Latin. He would probably wear Roman robes. And he would espouse Roman values. In everything, he would be seeking to actively serve as a positive pointer to Rome. And so similarly, a heavenly citizen will now seek to act as a positive pointer to the kingdom of God. In all that we do, the way that we treat each other, what we spend our energy on, how we react to a crisis. You could even say that the Christian community is a little like being an outpost of heaven pointing to the reality of new life in Christ. And an outpost of heaven should stand in stark reality, uh, a stark contrast rather, to the kingdoms of this world. Verse 19. Citizens of heaven are not like the enemies of Christ, with their mindset on earthly things, that is, the simple ways in which they oppose God. Now, doesn't that sound great? But we know ourselves all too well. We are not the best citizens. Okay, we're meant to be pointers to Jesus and the kingdom of God. Yet, all too often, we are like the compass that doesn't work. So, we end up pointing northwest when we're supposed to be pointing north. Or even when we're pointing south. Or, we are like a GPS that loses its signal. So it's a nice and expensive piece of hardware, but it's unable to fulfill its purpose. Now, an outpost of heaven should be a distinctive settlement in an alien environment. But too often, the architecture looks the same. Our priorities mirror the world. How then? How are we to be an outpost of heaven that shines like stars in this world, holding fast to the word of life? And it is to this matter that Paul now turns his attention to as he begins to close this letter. And that's chapter 4. Verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand from dust in the Lord, my beloved. Paul has been urging the Philippians to live out their calling as citizens of heaven. And so, his call to stand firm points backward as a conclusion to this exhortation. But it also points forward to what he is about to say. So in verses 2 to 9, Paul will begin to work out specifically what he has just been urging the Philippians to do generally. He wants to help them work out the gospel for themselves. He wants to show them what an outpost of heaven should look like in the details. 
and pole like this, not as a permanently frowning guru discipline kind of person. No, the Philippians are his brothers and sisters, whom he loves, whom he longs for, his very joy, his very crown. They are his very delight, his beloved. Now he probably drives the Roman guards crazy because he's constantly showing photographs of them. You know, Ooh, this is Yuri, I think she's cute. And that's Clement being silly. His appeal, of course, is grounded in the Lord. And you can see that throughout the passage that we're looking at today. Verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. And verse 7, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus the Lord. So, how should outposts of heaven look like? Well, firstly, they should be a heavenly outpost that displays gospel unity. A heavenly outpost that displays gospel unity. And that's in verses 2 and 3. I entreat Euodia and I entreat sympathy to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I was recently speaking to a friend of mine who was a missionary uh, who graduated from Moore College. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Moore College is an Australian theological college uh, and that's where Andrew trade. Now, he was, he was saying to me, you know, when I was about to go to Mo, quite a few of my friends were pretty envious. They said, it must be like going to heaven. But he said to me, let me assure you, Mo is definitely not heaven. Sorry. Now, some of us might have similarly rosy views about church life, although sadly, I suspect many of us are already more cynical due to past experiences. And here in verse 2, what we have is a disagreement between two women. Now notice that these ungrumpy old ladies on the fringes, they were, verse 3, women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. They were teammates together with Paul, struggling together towards the same goal. They were, verse 3 again, stand, uh, fellow workers, gospel partners, member of the same growth group, member of the same authority. Now, do you remember chapter 1? Paul remembers the Philippians with joy because of their partnership in the gospel. And he likely would have felt the same way about Euodia and Syntyche. He is sure that he who began a good work in them will bring it to completion. And he does not change his mind here because if you look at verse 3 again, he states that their names 
are in the book of life. So all this suggests that these were not disruptive or immoral women, but rather women who were very much involved in this Christian community and people who were committed to the sake, to the cause of the gospel. Yet even they were capable of having a sharp disagreement with each other. And post he now, in verse 2, for them to agree in the Lord. And he underlines the importance of this uh, by firstly mentioning it publicly in this letter, and secondly through his double use of the word entreat. So, I entreat Euodia. I entreat sympathy. You see, this isn't just some playground stat where, you know, Euodia goes, you know, I don't want to friend you anymore. And then goes and talks in the corner. And then Papa Po comes and says, Okay, girls, settle down. Please go and share the screen, okay? Okay. Rather, Po is appealing to something deeper. Euodia and Syntyche have a common connection in the Lord. And so they should have a common connection with each other. That is, the pattern of thinking, their orientation, their attitudes, all should be the same. Christ is your head. He governs them both. And so as members of the same body, they should honor one another. Furthermore, if you go back to chapter 1 again, in verse 27, Paul calls on the Philippians to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Clearly, being an outpost of heaven, seeing the advance of the gospel, is linked to gospel unity. Now, we don't know the details of their uh, disagreement. Maybe it was a personality clash. Uh, maybe it was disagreement over a strategic decision. Uh, maybe it was minor theological differences. It doesn't really matter. What is clear, though, is that this doesn't come as a big surprise. Who is in shock? Who doesn't seem to think that this sort of thing should never happen? Christians, even Christian leaders, do fall out with each other. After all, who are Christians? Who are Christian leaders? They are sinners saved by grace. They are sinners trying to partner together. And they are sinners often who have strong convictions over the gospel. Good convictions of which we might work out sometimes in a way that is not glorifying to God. Welcome to the church family. But who also desires for gospel unity to be displayed? Now, forgiveness and reconciliation should be the order of the day. What about you today?
there's someone you need to go and see to sort out things. If there's something that you have let fester for a while and it's turning you green faster than mold on bread, have you forgotten that you are on the same team because you kept on thinking about how he or she was so mean? Paul says, sit down, work it out, agree in the Lord. Not necessarily agree on every single thing, but if the gospel is your foundation, if the gospel is your non-negotiable starting point, you can work out everything else. And notice too that Paul asks his true companion, that's in verse 3, and we don't know who that is, to act as a peacemaker. The wider church has responsibility too, because this unity in the body diminishes it. Of course, we're not to be like the paparazzi, sticking his nose where it's not wanted. But we must not be afraid to engage in the process of reconciling two brothers or sisters in the Lord. And again, this is because church life is family life. It is to be a heavenly outpost that displays gospel unity. Secondly, be a heavenly outpost that displays joyful forbearance. The heavenly outpost that displays joyful forbearance. Come with me to verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now, there's a really, really old U2 song called Rejoice, which will probably drive you crazy if you put it on loop. You know, it's got great lyrics like, uh, I can't change the world, but I can change the world in me if I rejoice. Uh, and then he goes on to say, but I don't know what to change. I don't know what's the purpose of that. But maybe, by now, you're beginning to get annoyed at Paul because he's always on loop. You know, here he goes again, rejoice, rejoice. You know, they talk to him, gamble, pay commission or something. How can he ask me to rejoice if he knows what I'm going through? But brothers and sisters, don't brush aside this latest call to joy from Paul. You see, Paul knows what he's talking about. He can rejoice when Christ is proclaimed, whether out of wrong or right motive. He can rejoice when he sees his gospel partners being like-minded. He can rejoice at the rejoicing of the Philippians when they see Epaphroditus again. He can rejoice in prison. He can rejoice when he's carrying up his resume of past achievements. He can rejoice in the Philippians whom he loves, whom he longs for, his very crown. Rejoice, he says, and he lives it out in every sphere of his life. But how does he do that? The important thing is who he rejoices in, and it is the Lord Jesus. 
Now, my mom, she loves uh, sewing and smoking and, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't really understand. Uh, she can spend hours just taking out all those various things, there are lots of things, in a sewing kit. And then she works at a sewing machine for ages. And she can study very deeply the intricacies of a particular uh, sewing pattern. You see, she takes joy in it. She delights in it. Now, maybe you can think of something similar. You know, maybe that's a film you love. You know, you know all the lines in all the right places. But you never miss an opportunity on a lazy Friday night to put it in the DVD player again. And you go out to the shop and you buy the super special deluxe Blu-ray edition, even though you already own the deluxe edition, special edition, extended edition, limited edition, DHS maybe. How much more with the Lord Jesus? You see, there is so, so much to thank Him for, to worship Him for, to exalt in Him for, from Monday to Sunday. Here is Jonathan Edwards, a 16th century American pastor and theologian, and he's meditating on Jesus in one of his sermons, and this is what he says. If Christ accepts you, you need not fear, but that you will be safe, for he is a strong lion for your defense. And if you come, you need not fear, but that you shall be accepted, for he is like a lamb to all that come to him, and receives them with infinite grace and tenderness. Or think of the song that we just sung earlier. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there to put an end to all my sins. Or turn to scripture itself. Plenty. Here's this one. 1 John 3 verse 1 in the NIV. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. Take time with the Lord Jesus. Look, look at yourself as you really are and you can. Look at the cross as you really should and rejoice. And my friends, if you do not call yourself a Christian yet, take time to with the Lord Jesus. Look at Him. Really look at Him in the pages of your Bible. Maybe with a Christian friend. He is the Savior and it's like the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. You put your trust in Him. You will be saved. And so, following on from that, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, the word translated reasonableness here in the EFT is quite a difficult word to translate. And if you look at the other translations, they all have different words for it. So, the NIV has gentleness. The KJV has moderation. The NLT has considerate. And I've gone with the word, a bit of an older word, forbearance, which I thought best captured the meaning. Forbearance is sort of uh, good-natured uh, patience 
can be free and it's a willingness to uh, put others first all that sort of thing now what does that look like? now imagine that you just heard really good news you know maybe your boss has praised you publicly and as good as told you that uh, you're going to get a raise maybe your boyfriend has proposed to you in the most romantic way possible or maybe uh, Lee Chong Wei finally won the badminton championship now you'll be in very good spirits when you you'll be kinder to everyone you see you'll, you'll be even patient with that waiter you know who made that cup of hot milo and then he just put like two tiny ice cubes in it and then he served you your order and he called it ice milo but then there are the other kinds the other guy in the office is giving you more work to do again while he goyangkaki again the children are still watching Phineas and Spur even though you scream at them for the 10th time to come to the dinner table the apprentice keeps on forgetting to say the uh, to, to do the thing that he said he would so now you're thinking of various ways which you can drown that waiter in a whirlpool of boiling hot milo and you also want to drown the apprentice and the uh, well probably not the children but the other guy in it guess what though who are Christians? Christians are people who have heard really good news they are the ones who rejoice in the grace of God Thus, the more our hearts overflow with the truth and joy of the gospel, the more we can let our forbearance, our reasonableness, our gentleness be known to all. As God has shown us grace, so we should be gracious with one another. The Lord is at hand. And it is the gospel then that helps us to be a heavenly outpost that displays joyful forbearance. Thirdly, be a heavenly outpost that displays prayerful trust. Be a heavenly outpost that displays prayerful trust. Now, what is it that we want? Who do we care deeply about? And that is often the location of which our anxieties emerge. Maybe some of you are in unfamiliar territory right now. Now perhaps you're in a new environment, or you're in a new workplace, perhaps even a new city. Or perhaps you're at a new stage of life, a new career, new relationship, new family. Or perhaps you're in a new situation. You know, you've got an unexpected relational conflict. Or there's a tough long-term illness in your family. Or maybe there's financial difficulties. And we long with all our heart so that the many uncertainties of life should be all removed or at least 
minimize. Wouldn't it be great if decision making was so much easier? You know, it would be great if God just gave me those 10 quick steps to knowing which job to take, how to be successful at it, remain godly and ethical all at the same time. Or, if God just gave me the five right things to say, which will automatically make me popular with my new friends, give great advice to my old friends, and convert everybody to Christ. You see, and we long for things too, to sometimes just, just resolve itself. You know, wouldn't it be nice if my elderly parents were not so frail? Oh, how I wish that complicated relationship wasn't so complicated. You know, we end up staring at our ceilings on our beds at night asking, what if? Or what happens if that happens? Ultimately, anxieties reveal the loyalties of our hearts. We want to be in control. We want comfort. We will be anxious at the prospect of change. If we want approval, we will be anxious at the prospect of criticism. Here in verse six, Paul has a deeply pastoral response. He says, "Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving." Let your request be made known to God. Paul doesn't tell us that we cannot be anxious, as if we can just hold all in all of it in any way, or just and just ignore it. But instead, he invites us to see our anxieties as an opportunity, an opportunity to turn from fear and worry to trust in God to come before God in prayer and acknowledge Lord I am not in control I cannot and I should not be independent and I run to you now in the Lord Jesus to express my dependence on you you see when we turn to God in prayer what we are actually doing in the end is we are working out the gospel. Now, Paul Miller is the author of this great book, uh, The Praying Life, and he's got this really rich insight. And he says, the very thing we are allergic to, our helplessness is what makes prayer work. It works because we are helpless. We can't do life on our own. Prayer mirrors the gospel. In the gospel, the Father takes us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of salvation. In prayer, the Father receives us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of help. We look at the inadequacy of our praying and give up, thinking something is wrong with us. God looks at the adequacy of his Son and delights in our sloppy, mindering prayers. We are not disturbing God when we pray. Rather, it is the outworking of what we are saved for. 
to be in relationship with Him. And that's why Paul says our prayers are to be marked with thanksgiving. Even as we present our request to God, we are to be grateful to Him because we have already received the best gift of all, which is salvation in Christ through the gospel and all the blessings of knowing Jesus. Now, what is the result of such prayerful trust? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, whether our requests are granted or not, God promises this one thing. He will offer us the peace of God. The peace of God here is not some vague, fuzzy feeling, but it's a certain sense that we are safe in Jesus. We have a sure refuge in Him, one that guards our heart and mind and stamps us with the mark of heavenly citizenship. We know God, the maker of the universe, the one who saves us, the one who works ultimately for our good. He's our Father. If we believe all this, my brothers and sisters, then we can be heavenly outposts that displays prayerful trust. Fourthly, and be a heavenly outpost that displays gospel thinking. A heavenly outpost that displays gospel thinking. And that's verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, reading that list might bring back bad memories of sitting for your SPM moral. Paul lays out six virtues, and he summarizes their essence at the end. He says, you know, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The Philippians are to dwell carefully on this list because they are like the criteria for model citizenship. But hopefully we are clear by now that the gospel drives all post instructions. For as we reflect on these virtues, sooner or later, we will eventually reflect on the person of Christ. For what, or rather who, is more just and pure and loving? Lord Jesus, who lived a sinless, perfectly faithful life, who showed compassion, who exposed hypocrisy. The Lord Jesus, who went to the cross, to pay the penalty for our sins to show God's righteousness. Only when we see Jesus can we be transformed.
or think. What has been commendable so far in this letter? Now, we might initially think of the conduct of Timothy, who put other people himself, or we might think of Epaphroditus, who risked his life for Christ. And yet we know they are commendable in so far as they imitate Christ, their Saviour. And that is why Paul can call on the Philippians to practice what they learn and receive and heard and seen in him. Or they have learned and received the gospel. And they have heard and seen how Paul works out the gospel. And what about this? Does the culture here in fact encourage us to dwell on Christ? To work out the gospel? Uh, implications in our life? Are we practicing what we have learned and see? Are we constantly talking to each other about our quiet times, what we've been learning in our cell groups, what we've heard on a Sunday, and how that should impact our lives? The end result should motivate us. Look at verse 9. The God of peace will be with you. God himself will be there as we struggle to work out the gospel. Therefore, be a heavenly outpost that displays gospel thinking. Now, as we finish, let me tell you a little bit about uh, a novel called Waiting for the Barbarians by J.M. Kurtzia, who is a South African writer. He won the Nobel Prize. Now, in this story, there's a judge who lives quietly in a small outpost town in a large empire, uh, and he's minding his own business. But then, a high-ranking general arrives. And the general, this general, is supposedly defending the town from invading barbarians. But in truth, he is actually just torturing innocent people. Now, the judge goes along with this for, for a while, but then he realizes that all this is pretty evil. And so he tries to uh, change himself, actually, uh, to go against the general. But he doesn't succeed. At the end of the story, the empire wins. Even worse, he discovers that he is more like the general than he admits. His own conduct is almost like a pointer, a mirror, to that of the general. It's a depressing story. But that is not the story of the Christian. We too are outposts and we are pointing to the king and his kingdom. But through the gospel, we can participate now in his suffering and know his resurrection power. We know we are part of the kingdom that will outlast all other kingdoms. We are not waiting for the barbarians, but we are waiting for the new creation and the blessing of one day being able to see Jesus face to face. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. Let us pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the Lord Jesus. Uh, we thank you that we have so much to praise Him for, to worship Him for. Please help all of us to keep on dwelling on the Lord Jesus, uh, to dwell on the Gospel, and that as we do that, we will be able to work out its implications in every area of our lives, in our relationships with each other here at church, uh, as we deal with difficult circumstances, uh, as we try to change our thinking. Uh, Father, please help us. And we thank you that uh, in Jesus, we know that uh, we are safe in you. Uh, we know that you are with us. Uh, pray that you would help us all now to encourage each other to stand firm. We pray all this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen.